Hi, listeners. Just a reminder that today is part two of our conversation with Darren Case. This is a spitfire session where I throw ideas at Darren and I get his hot take. Enjoy. Yeah, I, I tried to, to, to execute the, the KISS principle in estate planning, especially for advanced estate planning tools where um, I love Jonathan Morrison and hopefully he listens to the podcast so we can name drop a bunch of people and they'll actually listen. But uh, yeah, he's got some fascinating ideas. I'm like, well, yeah, the, the KISS principle, though, we, we got to keep it simple so the clients understand what's going on, because if they don't, then, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> Let me then, unless you want to talk more about Prop 208, let me throw a couple of ideas at you. Uh, This is a take Darren's temperature portion. (laughs) Okay. Here are a couple ideas of things that could be done uh, before the end of the year. And you just, you tell me whether you would or wouldn't do it. We can talk about like why you would or wouldn't do it. Okay. And just to clarify, this is a podcast. There won't be a video, right? So no, no, like no, no video. If I turn beet red or I get stressed out, they won't see this when you no say a certain strategy. Okay. No, we'll just keep that between us. If okay. you, and, and if you decide to just flip me off, no one will see that either. <laughs> and uh, I'll pretend I didn't see it. I'll try to hide the gasps. Uh, okay, first one. First one. The A skin grat. Oh, uh, not a fan. <laughs> um, and this is this is solely Darren's opinion. A- anytime you're using a skin transaction, and I'll let Brent and, and Rachel more properly define it because I, I just don't do them enough. I, I just think it, it it adds heavy scrutiny to the transaction. Anytime you're using debt and self-canceling installment notes, those types of things. Um, it just maybe I'm too conservative a tax attorney. I know. There's other good practitioners practitioners here in town that, that do them regularly. I'm just you know not particularly a fan. And in the GRAT context, uh, I wouldn't be a fan of that either. It might be too too uh, the pigs get fat, hogs get slaughter in my mind. But uh, okay. it's and so to to explain it, I guess for anybody who's like, what are you talking about? Um, Skin, S-C-I-N, self-canceling installment note. And a grat is a grantor retained annuity trust. The idea is with the self-canceling installment note, you sell assets, you get back a note that's a promise to pay you over a certain number of years. But it says if you die before the note is paid, paid in full, it cancels the note. It forgives the balance of the note. And the magic of that is that the note itself is then not supposed to be included in your estate. There's a handful of cases on this topic. It is it is a, a fairly meaty topic, probably more than we need to talk about today. But one of the features of it is you're supposed to get paid a premium on the interest rate in the note or a premium on the principal payments that come back to you on the note to take into account this self-canceling feature. And the idea is you would take the note, put it into a grat so that you could shave off the amount of the interest rate that exceeds the current quote unquote seven 2520 rate, which is the GRAT discount rate, that rate right now is 0.4%, going to be 0.6% next month. So if the skin note pays more than 0.4%, whatever amount it pays over 0.4%, 
goes into the grat and ultimately goes to your family, potentially gift tax free. That's the idea with the skin grat. Uh, you know, uh, David Handler um, and David Herzog, they presented, not to keep going back, my favorite uh, national seminar is the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Conference. If you get a chance to go, obviously, hopefully post-COVID, so you can go to a Notre Dame football game. But they presented on the topic, and I believe that, you know, they were describing it as it's just <laughs> – it's too perfect of a transaction where, I mean, you, you hedge your bet in every way, shape, or form. And so it's, in my mind, it's more on the aggressive side. But I look at it, and the last time we did this podcast, um, we had you look up the, the, the hurdle rate for grats, 75-20 rate, and it was 0.4. And we were both shocked that they had gotten that low because the last time I think we looked at it, it was one point something. But, yeah, T, if you can establish a grat now, and the hurdle rate is 0.4%. I'd be comfortable on just doing that amazing transaction with not complicating it uh, so much with a you know self-canceling installment note. Obviously, if you're in a use it or lose it scenario with uh, an exemption amount of potential drop, I. I wouldn't be using grats right now. That's a hold off and, and see what happens with the, the Georgia runoffs. All right. Next one. Uh, we've talked about grats. What about just long-term notes? The AFR for a long-term note right now is 1.17%. Gosh. <laughs> It's been, uh, well, before I um, see this, is, I'm buying myself time to come up with just a beautiful answer, but no, that's not really what I'm doing. But to, I started my, my law practice in 08, 09, and it was funny saying it's like interest rates are a historic all-time low. We're never going to see this again. Well, it's 2020, and I haven't looked back at 08, 09, but it kind of seems like we're back there, if not better, with interest rates. So uh, to answer your question directly, I've certainly done these transactions. Um, there has been some recent, um, if, if I saw it correctly, so maybe, I don't think it's private letter rulings, there might be a tax court case, but I think a key component of that is having you know, adequate security, where if, um, and we'll make this, this loan to Rachel, because I'm not loading Brent anything, but let's say that that I, I, lo <laughs> I loan Rachel $20 million. It's a 20-year note, um, and ultimately the interest rate is that lovely one point, whatever it was. Um, that That's great. And um, so Rachel is, is not part of the Darren Case uh, family, and, and so it, it kind of loses the scrutiny that way. But the IRS takes a step back in my mind and many people's minds and looks at that saying, well, who in their right mind, no offense, Rachel, would just loan Rachel $20 million at such a low interest rate without any security. And so they would potentially look at that saying, congratulations, Darren, that is a $20 million gift that you just made to Rachel minus the $15,000 annual exclusion amount, which is meaningless. Um, so if there's adequate security involved, I'd, I'd say, yes, you could proceed on something that, like that perhaps maybe not too drastic and you do have to look at the you know my resources in that scenario and Rachel's resources in that scenario I've seen people ultimately they make the loan to the individual and that loan goes into an investment account and they have security on that investment account I think you're really getting there um, and making it more of a arm's length transaction so to speak involving an LLC in some way but yeah the, the more 
facts that you add to that, the more comfortable I'd be in doing such a transaction. And, and I, well, clients probably love the transaction as well because, well, how much is this going to cost me? And it's like, well, the promissory note is maybe one to two pages, uh, you know, maybe three if it's, you know, really customized. And so that's not an expensive transaction, but it's the guidance that's going to cost, you know, quite a bit more. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a good transaction. And I certainly have done some of that as well. Yeah, I, I fall into your camp. I, I don't like big loans that aren't secured, partly because I'm a, a nervous lawyer, and I want to be able to foreclose on the loan whenever I want. So I like that transaction, if you're going to do it to be a loan to an LLC secured by the membership interest in the LLC, so that if they don't pay, presumably, parent, grandma, whoever is doing the transaction can take back the LLC and then put controls in the LLC documents that prevent them from making distributions, large distributions or making liquidating distributions without the consent of the lender and force them to invest that money in the LLC, essentially. That's I think that there's a I think there's a risk with some some of those transactions, the more you start layering in entities like that, that you have to think twice about whether the LLC is in fact still functioning from a tax perspective as an LLC or has it become a trust for tax purposes. And I think you there's a little bit of a fine line there. So you do have to be kind of careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the beauty of that that transaction, and, and I love walking clients through this, is that with the interest rates so extremely low is, is that, and again, these are wonderful problems to have and, and you know, the proclaimed uh, lovely phrase, rich people problems. But ultimately, if in this same transaction, if I'm lending the $20 million to Rachel and the interest rate is 1%, ultimately I, I'm freezing that asset because I have a promissory note returning the $20 million to me plus this teeny tiny interest rate, inflation and the assets would appreciate outside of my estate. And they darn well better appreciate and inflation ultimately is going to grow larger than the 1%. And so it's just, it's a beautiful transaction in that regard. And then the security of knowing that, you know, you still have that 20 million. Granted, it's a terrible loan in any other context, but you're getting the 20 million back plus that interest rate. And then from my perspective, over time, you can kind of slow pay the the um, forgiveness of the loan, the principal and interest. If you wanted to make a gift in that regard, you could start doing it that way. Yeah, totally. And you can you can forgive the note if you want to say forgive the note up to your annual exclusion. So next year it's fifteen thousand dollars per person. So on a million dollar loan, um, mom and dad can forgive. $30,000, that's 3% of the balance. So every year they can discount the note by 3%. Actually, the discounting rate goes up every year. The percentage goes up every year because the, the principal balance goes down. So you can get you can start kind of shaving down the note and gifting down the note a little bit and shifting more of the money over to the kids. All right, next one. So we talked about SLATs last time, spousal lifetime access trusts or spousal limited access trusts, depending on who you're talking to. So you don't need to get into the the nitty gritty of SLATs. If anybody has questions about that, they can go back to your prior episode. But let's say you're going to do SLATs and um, you want to try to avoid the reciprocal trust doctrine. Do you think either of these two methods could get you there, okay? Number one, you do uh, a series of trusts. So maybe you don't want the terms of the trust to be so different right up front, but you don't know which one you want exactly in the end. 
So instead you do trust A, that's just a little bit different on day one. Maybe you wait a week or so. You do trust B, that's a little bit more different. And then presumably before the end of the year, you do trust C, and that's even more different. And then you wait out your three-year gift tax audit period, statute of limitations, and then you pick the one you actually wanted and you combine them. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. Um, I'm a huge fan of plugging in that merger clause into any trust forum possible. It's, uh, it, it's a saving grace for a lot of times when clients have old estate plans that are well, old. <laughs> Um, for avoiding the reciprocal trust doctrine, well, a few thoughts before I answer that, that question directly. I think the reciprocal trust doctrine has been just beat into our brains that it is something that is, you know, the IRS is going to hammer home, you know, hammer you with ultimately in, in doing these things. I'm of the opinion that the reciprocal trust doctrine is not too difficult to avoid. I mean, candidly, you switch a few powers of appointment, you switch a few terms. I mean, granted, we're running out of time, but execute the documents in two separate tax years. I mean, there's like eight to 10 factors that you can tweak and, and you can't tell me, I mean, the IRS could try, but they can't argue with a straight face of, of saying, no, these trusts are reciprocal, they're identical. It's like, well, no, there's, there's eight different things here. And so the the multiple trust component, um, it's fascinating. I and mean, so long as you tweak a few of the, the provisions in each one of them, and however many you're comfortable with, that, that's up to you. I'd say, yeah, technically, I'd be okay with that. Um, I've never done it that way. I, if you have a client, if you have a client that's willing to do, you know, about seven trusts instead of the two, you let me know. <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress. Yeah, and I sort of think of it as a risk risk silos, um, where the the risk of the reciprocal trust doctrine, maybe to drill down, is that the IRS would say spouse who created the slat still owns the assets that are in the slat. And so when they die, those assets are included in their estate. That blows up the plan. So if you're not sure where the line is, maybe you draw several lines. And then mm -hmm. if you trip up on one, maybe you didn't trip up on the other two. That's mm -hmm. that sort of thinking. All right, let me, let, me, let me change it on you just a little bit. What about a slat that has a, a flip provision like you might see in a charitable remainder uni trust and a flip provision being a provision that says, if condition XYZ happens, the trust terms will change into something else. So, uh, so let me, so let me, sorry, let me, let me, uh, let me drill down on that just a little bit. Slat A for spouse A, but slat A for spouse A, slat B for spouse B. Um, on day one, they're not identical, but slat B has a flip provision that says, if conditions XYZ happen, they will become identical. Mm. I, I'd say no. Um, I mean, if I'm the IRS and I see those provisions in there, um, I know this does not get used a lot in our area, but at some point, and this was maybe Brent, we had the same professor, but uh, at Georgetown's LLM program, but it was, at some point, the estate gift and GST tax unit of the IRS is going to realize that the step transaction doctrine actually does apply to our area as well. <laughs> They still haven't figured that out. And, and hopefully they're not listening to this podcast and I just blew it for all the practitioners and they're going to be stoning my house or whatever. They're TPing my house or whatever. But no, I, I, I probably, for some reason, that just gives me a little bit of discomfort um, because I just feel like 
they could they can make the argument to say, well, the intent really was to have these reciprocal regardless of that that flip provision um but yeah no i i have yeah i, I tried to, to to execute the the kiss principle in the state planning especially for advanced estate planning tools where um i love jonathan morrison and hopefully he listens to the podcast so we can name drop a bunch of people and they'll actually listen but uh yeah he's got some fascinating ideas i'm like well yeah the, the kiss principle though we, we got to keep it simple so the clients understand what's going on because if they don't then, then we're all in trouble all right very good well, this is actually a much more simple uh, one. What about long-term grats? The so-called 99-year grat, although it doesn't need, need to be 99 years. I don't know why anybody came up with 99, but, you know, long-term grats. Uh, well, yeah, so I'll, I'll answer that in just a bit. So one last comment. I'd actually like to ask you guys the question. So in this environment with the Biden tax proposal, so if you have clients, and I joked with you before, I, I had essentially five slats that I was going to establish and, and all the clients got cold feet on them. But on each one of them, I was actually considering allocating GST tax exemption to the SLAT. And, and, and some people listening is like, well, that's crazy. You know, why would, if you have the spouse as the beneficiary, so well, the intent of the SLAT is they're not really going to touch it, but they could have access to it if they need it. You know, yes, it'll go down to the kids, the next generation, but if we were going to set up an IGIT and apply GST tax exemption and hopefully it carries it down, but, but I'd be curious of whether you guys would be willing to allocate GST tax exemption to a slat, answer my own question. I was willing to do it with the assumption that if the family understands if they keep it in there for multiple generations, it works. The answer is yes. I'm willing to okay. do it. And here's, let me, to, to contextualize it just a little bit. Nobody asked that question for a traditional bypass trust at death, but the surviving spouse is going to use the assets in the bypass trust or has access to use the assets in the bypass trust, but nobody asked that question in that context. So why would it be any different if you do a slat and it's basically a lifetime bypass trust? I just, I don't, I understand, sorry, I understand the logic of the argument against it. I just don't see it applying, being applied um, consistently in all the various contexts, other than the fact that the grantor is still alive. And I don't think there's enough of a risk because we're not, I'm not going to do a slat if I don't feel pretty confident that the grantor does not need a dime out of that trust ever in his or her lifetime. Mm -hmm. And if that's a risk, that's, I'm not going to do it. That's like a real risk, speed. sorry, not a catastrophic <laughs> list, risk. That, that's where the, the cold feet has come in for, for a lot of these clients. So we're like, well, what happens if the spouse dies before me? And it's like, well, then the assets aren't accessible anymore. <laughs> and, and, and so it makes sense. It's like, well, well gosh, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, I, I did explain that previously, but so be it. Uh, but no, I, I think it's it's brilliant comparison. I, I never really thought about that, but maybe, maybe Brent's on to something. I don't want to give him too much credit. So we'll just say Rachel came up with it. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Instead of calling it a slat, I mean, calling it a lifetime bypass trust, and, and maybe the IRS would care less if we called it a lifetime bypass trust, because I mean, that's that's what it is. That's absolutely what it is. So that, that's a that's a really good comparison on it. All yeah, right, but I, again, I totally get I totally get and understand the argument for not allocating GST exemption to the slat. However, let me, let me throw one other concept by you in that regard. And this is somewhat a la, say, 2012. Um, if you're in a situation where there is a risk that your GST exemption is going to drop 
potentially by a large number, if you wait until the next year, you would absolutely a thousand percent want to use the extra GST exemption that you have now on the off chance that it does you good in the future. Because mm-hmm. um, there's no guarantee you'll have it in the future. So I'm, I'm for that reason too, certainly under the circumstances we're working with now, but also previously for all the reasons I just said, I'm, I'm real motivated to use the GST exemption. Mm-hmm. I have one last comment on flats and then I'll finally answer your GRAT question. Yeah, that'd be nice <laughs> so, if you actually answer the questions. <laughs> it's like a true attorney. It's like, well, or a politician. It's like, you asked me this question. I'm going to answer the question I, I, you didn't ask that I like, I know. About. Yeah, you've been a anyway. little too into this election season, I can tell. <laughs> oh man, it's been a long year for all of us. But uh, so the 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 other cold feet scenario, and, and maybe you guys have seen this as well, is having the discussion of, hey, if we create these flats, and what happens if we get divorced? And, and so I have the conversation with them that, well, the family law court should not touch these things because these are irrevocable trusts, but they they do, and we've all seen them, especially with islets. All of a sudden. The islet is now part of the family unit again, but but anyway, I digress. Is that you know the provisions ultimately that uh, you know a lot of attorneys have had is that if there's a divorce, ultimately it treats the the spouse beneficiary is, is then deceased. So it, it's I'm gifting my assets to the flat for my then current spouse. And so if there's a divorce situation, then ultimately it would go to the kid. I've had some people say, well, wait a minute. Like if, if it's just saying it's like to the spouse of the trustor, couldn't you get remarried? And ultimately they become the beneficiary of the slat. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if you want that or that's a good idea. I think you naturally want to have it go down to the kid at that point. But but anyway, so that's another cold feet situation that I'm guessing a lot of practitioners have experienced as well. Yeah, that's that's a challenge, especially in a non 50-50 scenario where you have one spouse that has more money and they're the more logical person to fund the slat. It's aside from it being a, a real risk that, you know, the day after the slat is funded, they could get served with a divorce petition and, <laughs> you know, they just lost all their money. But I'll, I'll, it's a I'll risk. Always, Ladies first. So go ahead. Go again. <laughs> <laughs> you can create the slat first. Uh, yeah, no. But anyway, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> All right. To, to finally answer your question, the 99-year grad, um, there are unique scenarios that could convince me to do it. Um, I've seen suggestions for ultimately um, for young families. So my kids are five, seven, and nine. And I want to make it clear to anybody listening to the podcast, I do not have sufficient assets to do a GRAT transaction. Um, the LLM program at Georgetown is wonderful as it is. I'll be paying that off for quite some time. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but to drive home the point, I don't have enough assets to do a grad. But if I could essentially do a nine, you know, like the, these crazy grads or, you know, whatever the scenario is, I could see a scenario where it, it does make sense. Um, I haven't ventured to look into those too much. Um, I have an unhealthy obsession with grats. I'd like to clarify, rolling grats. I absolutely love them. Um, it's a have a transaction ultimately. And, and statistically, you know, some people say, well, why not do a long-term grat and lock in this low interest rate? People need to realize that these interest rates, they don't go from 0.4 to 9. 
it, it doesn't happen like that. If somebody did that, they'd blow a hole in the economy and we'd have bigger problems. It, it creeps up over time and it creeps back down. And studies show if you keep rolling these two-year grads, so at the two-year grad at the end of year one, take the money the trustor is going to receive back and just put that into a new grad, keep throwing the money back into the grad over and over again, is that that's the best way to transfer the most amount of wealth to the beneficiaries. Because as you guys know, if grad number one, if it fails in year one, it's failing. If it's, if it's, it's, it's going to fail if it's two-year grad, it's going to fail if it's tenure. It's so hard to recover if you fail in that year number one, because if let's say it's marketable securities, the stock market plunges like it did ultimately with COVID and there's no V-shaped recovery. Um, you know, end of year one, you distribute that portion out and then the you know assets had already dropped, it's going to be hard to recover from that. And so again, I'm going way, way hard into rolling grats, but you can better transfer more wealth that way. And so when I walk clients through that strategy versus short-term rolling grats versus long-term grats, uh, the, the scenario in my mind uh, always wins for the, the two-year rolling grat. Why two years? Uh, we had this discussion last time. I don't understand it, um, <laughs> but for whatever reason, two years is the magical number where the IRS will not challenge it if it's, if it's two years. You go under two years, ultimately, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. The IRS says, no, that's not appropriate. All right, but anyway, now I'm going too far and I'm rambling on. So I don't have the assets to do a grat. But I would love to do a grat with my $4 in my wallet right now and just have it for be less than two years <laughs> and to be the test case to see if the IRS is actually willing to say if it's, you know, what's the number, you know, multiple grats and we'll make them like two years or sorry, one year, 11 months or 10 months and keep scaling it back to see where the actual line is drawn. Anyway, I'll pause here. I've rambled on on grats yeah. and clearly I have an unhealthy obsession with grats. Well, let me, uh, let me throw a couple of things at you then. So I've heard, I hear two things about long-term grats or the, the supposed 99-year uh, grat. The first is to lock in the low interest rate like you're, like you're suggesting where, uh, you know, the, the, the rate, the 7520 rate is 0.4% right now, going to be 0.6%, excuse me, in December. That is a literally historically low number. There is not another number on the chart in the history of the 7520 rate that is that low. So you could lock in that number for a very long time. The other, the other uh, justification that I hear is when you read the rules related to the inclusion of the grat assets in your estate when you die. So the idea is if, if I set up a grat and it's going to pay me an annuity payment every year, and then I die before it's done paying me my annuity back. The rule says I have to include in my estate the amount of the principal of the grat that's necessary to cover the balance of the annuity payments I'm owed at the then prevailing interest rate. And so if you start out at a very low interest rate, very little discounting, and then you die in a year when you have a high interest rate, now high discounting, on the annuity values, it's possible that less than all of the assets of the grat would be included in your estate. And I can't remember where the threshold tips. If you mathematically, you can figure out where like it tips in your favor. Um, and I, it's it's a couple of percentage points 
difference for where you start to where you die, where, where the math flips into your favor. And now all of a sudden you're actually getting a benefit by dying during the term. You're getting a discount on the assets that are in the, in the graph. That was a really boring way to try to describe how to calculate annuities. I know. <laughs> um, I'm just going to get anybody listening to this. If anybody has made it to this point in the episode, um, just trust me on that. Um, that's how the math works. Those are the two justifications that I've heard. The big downside that, that I think works with longer term grats that I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talk about is that once you have your grat set up and once you have the annuity payments set up, you cannot alter those annuity payments. So unlike the loan, like we were talking about doing a long-term loan, you can pay off the loan whenever you want. You can pay back more principal whenever the lender needs the principal. But with a grat, if I set up a long-term grat, you know, let's say it's a 10 or 15 year grat, I can never go back to the trustee and say, you know what, I kind of want you to pay me early because I need the cash now. It's not an option. And that's for me on a more like practical basis, like that's the big risk with those long-term grats aside from the tax stuff. Like there's like a practical, will you ever need the cash? Will you ever need the assets back sooner? And if you do, it's not a good transaction. I guess I, I have a hard time seeing the the client scenario where it comes up and I'm like, you know what? a 99 year grad, this is the, the way to go. And, and obviously I've seen studies on it and arguments. It just seems like there, there might be better transactions out there to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and yeah. so I think sometimes these transactions, they get a, a bit too cute where somebody comes up with the idea and like, well, yeah, that, that's awesome. And I think my, my favorite transaction to pick on and, and I, probably should ask you if you guys establish these regularly, is Cupert's Qualified Personal Residence Trust. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I was it, shaking it, my it, head. Nobody could see me shake my head. I was shaking my head, no. And I've, it, I've, you, you almost, and the answer is to, to explain why I say no. It's the, because of that 0.4% interest rate, you almost get zero benefit by doing a Cupert right now. If the interest rate was 8%, I would think a lot more about Cupert's. Sure. Well, yeah, the Cupert transaction, I feel like when, when you go through law school and they teach wills and trusts and then you, you, you study like the advanced, you start getting the estate and they show you the Cupert. It's like one of the first advanced estate planning transactions that you learn. And you're like, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to become, you know, a, a tax and estate planning attorney. I'm going to set Cupert's up all day long. And then when you actually see how they work and it's like, oh, so the, the kids own your house at the end of year 15 or 20 and they become your landlord. Oh, I, I, I have tons of clients that would want that scenario and they get to kick you out of your home if they so choose. I, when I walk clients through that transaction, I've never seen one that says, you know what? Yes, I would love to have my kids as like my landlords. I have three kids. Um, I joke. I love all three of my kids equally, but if one of them is going to be my landlord, it's going to be my daughter, Audrey, because she's the only one I trust. Uh, my two boys would kick me out in a second, but like, I've never seen a client that's willing to to do that transaction. So I, I, I kind of look at the, those insanely long grats as the same way. It's like, well, yeah, the, the tax planning is really neat and, and cool, but you know, how many people are actually willing to, to uh, move forward with something like that? Yeah. I, I feel similarly about them. I'm like, yeah, the, the math is clever, but I can't, I just, I can't get past the practical side of it. It's like, mm, I don't know who wants it. And then to your point, there are other ways to accomplish the same thing that are better. Mm -hmm. That's just the, that's just the reality. And it's sort of like with the Cuperts. I mean, there are other ways to do interesting transactions with 
a residence that don't involve Qpert and you can get some pretty good benefits out of it and you can deal with those residences and you might be able to use it without paying rent. <laughs> well, uh, it kind of just made me think of this. So this was a transaction that actually, you know, I didn't really think was possible, but uh, you know, for clients trying to use their exemption amount, you know, discussing the ideas of, we actually had discussions of a Cupert. Um, I killed those pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but the concept of people that have properties where they, they, they just don't want to use their other assets for a gift, and this takes a certain type of client that's willing to do this, but if they have a home that's worth several million dollars and they can ultimately put a loan on the property at these you know really extremely low interest rates, I've seen clients that are yanking equity out of their home just to complete the gifts in 2020. Uh, I, I thought that was fascinating. Well, I said, gosh, I didn't even, <laughs> that's something I wouldn't even venture to suggest to a client ever. Like, hey, you know, the, the Latin translation for mortgage, mort means death and gauge means grip. You don't have a death grip on your home right now, but let's, let's give you a death grip on your home and, and then use that to gift to the next generation. So that was a fascinating uh, 2020 story that I've all ultimately seeing that multiple clients are willing to yank equity out of their home to, to make gifts to irrevocable trust. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting way to do it. Very interesting <laughs> way to do it. Well, I don't know if that would be on the top of my list, but that is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you learn, and so getting coming back full circle on the, the Biden tax proposal of just seeing people's perspectives of, of having clients that, and this is, you know, it's not, you know, Brad, you have a client that's worth $100 million that would never miss the 11.58, and they're like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then there's the clients that are barely over the exemption amount, and they, they desperately think the tax law is going to drop and they're going to be impacted, and they're trying to just shuffle every single asset that they have and and explaining to them that if the exemption amount is going to drop to 3.5 million, I really need you to gift well over 3.5 million for this to make sense. And, and they just don't have the assets, but they're trying desperately to do it. it it's just been fascinating to see like this 2020, um, this, this scenario. Yeah. It's always an exercise in human psychology in this practice because you know that's what it is. It's people it's people and families and there's all sorts of different kinds. Doesn't matter how much money is on the table or on the balance sheet, so to speak, it's still a person and it's all the different kinds of persons. Maybe I'll convince you guys. So I, I one of my, my biggest regrets that uh, about law school and the LLM program is that component. I wish there was courses that that taught this. Um, it, and so I'm actually writing a, a law review article on psychology and estate planning, psychoanalysis, behavioral economics, those types of things. Where maybe maybe the three of us were going to teach an LLM course to some school that's willing to to have <laughs> have us teach it. Because coming out of law school or an LLM program, that, that was just one of the things that was a, a, a rude awakening to the practice of, hey, I can do Cupert's, Gratz, all these wonderful transactions, and I'm excited to do this. And, oh, you're fighting over the wind chime that hung on mom's back porch, or you were the firstborn and you, you're the golden child or you're the like just stuff like that is fascinating in this practice i wish that they better prepared us uh for the, these types of discussions yeah amen to that <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Darren, you have been very patient with uh, my questioning. You have, you have reached the end of the questions, so thank you very much. And thank you again for joining us. This was fun. We'll have to do it again. Well, well thank you for all the questions. I think I answered my own questions, but I think I actually got to <laughs> It was excellent pivoting. <laughs> I never want to be a politician. I want to make that absolutely clear. So. <laughs> You, un, you got to change course soon. You're, you're down that path. You're developing the <laughs> skill set. Uh, I got to stop watching CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. And anyway, I digress. But, well, thank you guys for, for having me. I will come back anytime. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks again. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.